You're listening to Trending with Timory, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. National speaker Timory Millington has been a passionate advocate for life as long as she can remember, helping Gen X through Z answer the call to true feminism and authentic manhood. Timory holds a master's degree in biblical theology, and she covers this week's hottest stories from a Catholic worldview. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Here, Father Tim Grumbach is in the studio with me, and we have a full show. I was talking to Father Tim before the show, and for those who don't know, Father Tim is from St. Augustine Parish in Los Angeles. You're here so regularly that I feel like I don't have to introduce you anymore, but I should. It's always fun to be introduced by somebody, though. Yes, it is. It is. And you have to know a little bit about your background. He's heading out to Texas, by the way. So any of our Texan listeners, he'll be at the Life Teen Camp with your teenagers. So be sure to come and say hello to him. Yeah, we won't be too far outside of San Antonio, and I'm really looking forward to it. I've never been to that. Uh, part of Texas. And so, uh, you know, God's going to be doing a lot over the next week. So please pray for us. Awesome. I know you're in Ventura County or not in Ventura County, Whittier tonight. I'm thinking about all these earthquakes and the different places it's hit. We've been shaking and quaking here in California. If you haven't known, my husband's not from California and the earthquakes have been a little bit of a surprise to him. Yeah. And I was just sharing with you, there was something really cool that happened during that. That's 7.1. I think it was 6.9, 7.1. Either way, it's a big earthquake. Um, was I was celebrating mass that night. And so it was Friday night and we were having our first Friday mass. And so this big emphasis on, on, on the Eucharist and the sacred heart of Jesus. And literally as I'm lifting up the Eucharist and the doxology, I hear everything begin to shake and, and move. I'm like, what's going on here? And all the light fixtures start moving. The people pointing at the cross, which is swinging in the sanctuary behind me. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is the moment when the earth should be shaking during every single mass. But thankfully we don't need this reminder at every single mass. And so, <laughs> um, so we could you know, be grateful that uh, it was, uh, everyone was safe in our church, but we're, we're praying for those in Ridgecrest who, yes. who suffered a lot and, and are still suffering because of uh, the devastation of those quakes. Absolutely. And what a great spiritual gift that got a lot of that timing. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. during the mass. Well, now every mass that I celebrate, I'm like, is it going to happen again? Is it going to happen again? So, <laughs> Lord, you can quake and shake, but please yeah. don't let the walls yeah. fall down. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Not during mass. Well, we have a lot to talk about today. A bit of the theme is really using your voice to speak up. A lot of these issues are tough issues, especially with what's going on worldwide with regard to human life, defending and protecting it, both in the early stages from abortion and the later years away from essentially physician-assisted suicide and outright killing through euthanasia. We have some really chilling stories coming up from the UK about forced abortion and euthanasia. For those who don't know, we'll break that down a little bit, but also looking into some of the good news and change in pro-life perspective. And also don't go away because we'll be talking about the issue of rejection and how men really struggle with rejection and what can be done to really change the mindset and to move forward to take action in your lives. Yeah, because there's so much happening in the world right now. There's so much to say about it. And we might be afraid to be rejected because of what we have to say about it as faithful Catholics, uh, trying to be faithful Catholics. Um, but there's so much. So we'll go ahead and look at some of these things and and just kind of 
preach God's mercy into uh, the beginning of life, uh, the end of life and everything in between. So one issue that we don't talk enough about is that our death is inevitable. However, how we die should be a serious topic of concern. In fact, recently in the United Kingdom, there's a disabled man who, as he is no longer receiving medical attention, apart from nutrition, um, artificial nutrition through feeding tubes, basically a machine is helping to feed him. Well, this man has been ordered through the courts now that he is to be euthanized. Essentially, the basic nutrition of food and water is being taken away from him so that he will die as a result. This is even a little bit more gruesome than euthanasia in itself. Uh, Euthanasia being the actual ending of one's life. This is looking at a person who, well, for one, is not contributing anything to society. That may be one gruesome way to look at it. And another is uh, someone who's suffering isn't contributing to the society. So let's end this person's suffering. And instead of just killing him, which some would call a mercy killing, they are actually taking away his his food and his hydration. And so he will starve and die of thirst uh, because he's a, a somebody who's experienced a, a traumatic accident some years ago. 10 years ago. 10 years ago. And so yeah. he's been a quadriplegic all this whole time. Uh, I don't think, believe he's been speaking, but he's been able to uh, see people and and emotionally interact uh, right, with them. Right. And you know, it's it's such a complicated and difficult situation for the family because uh, I think six of eight of his siblings want them to end his life and his wife as well. And we must take into consideration the suffering that they they see in him and the suffering that they're enduring, having to watch uh, watch this as well. But his parents uh, do not want this to happen. Uh, but the you know courts have ordered this to happen and are, are forcing the hospital in which he's staying to take away his food and his hydration. And this is a real tragedy. And the Catholic Church has spoken to this. Uh, the the For CDF. For months uh, now. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, that and the uh, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith has some official teaching uh, from back as far back, I believe, as uh, 2007, speaking to a situation like this in which a person uh, seems to be in some sort of vegetative state, which he isn't even necessarily in a vegetative state, Mm -hmm. um, but somebody who cannot care for themselves, who if, um, you know, they're not keeping him alive by extraordinary means, they are simply feeding him and giving him hydration. And because he's become such a burden to the society, who um, and yes, you know, it's it's very difficult for his family. It's in many ways very similar to the Terry Shivo situation, mm, where ultimately right. some family members were for ending the life, and other family members were for preserving the life. And the, here's the reality: you may be listening, and you may have the utmost compassion. Wow, this man Vincent Lambert for ten years has really been in this disabled state. However, we can't say that quality of life determines whether or not someone should live or die. That's the same argument people make for children and aborting them. And so the church very clearly comes in and talks about how essentially we have to look at basic means of care. And there's a difference between ordinary basic care and extraordinary care. And they really, the church classifies that ordinary care includes basic 
hydration and nutrition through food, even if that requires some sort of machine in order to give that nutrition. And so the Catholic Church lays out in its bioethics conversation really clear examples. There's a difference between, let's say, someone dying as a cause of a disease or a cancer and someone intentionally being starved to death. In this case, this man's only cause of death will be starvation, Mm -hmm. not a disease that has taken over his body. Right. Right. And that's what the church has been speaking to and, you know, in specific ways over the last 12 years. And so this is nothing new for the church to encounter and to speak God's mercy into. And ultimately it comes down to, you know, when did the dignity of this person, when did this person lose their dignity so that we will let them starve to death? Well, and it's also a testament to the issue of marriage mm-hmm. as well. Right. You know, I, man, my heart feels, I mean, for right. this woman who yes. probably, I doesn't say if they have children or anything like that, but I imagine this woman's challenge and wow, her husband is severely wounded and will be likely for the rest of their marriage. Yet what are those vows that we say mm-hmm. to death do us part right. in sickness and in health and to see the challenges that we will not know that come up, but this is what God is calling us to in order to sanctify us in the loving sacrifice that we make. Right, right. And uh, this isn't a matter of us saying, you know, this woman must make this decision, you know, uh, that we're we're not trying to force her to make this decision because of, you know, how how terrible this must be for her family. And um, it just, must not have been an easy decision for her. But you have to remember decisions like this were not even allowed until more recently. In mm-hmm. fact, France has so that it is illegal for a euthanasia to be initiated in the country. However, in 2005, suddenly a law was passed for the first time there, allowing that if there seems to be, quote, disproportionate treatment, which no longer affects the maintaining of life, um, then essentially that disproportionate treatment doesn't need to continue to be used, but disproportionate treatment is not basic food and water. Mm -hmm. It will be one thing if it's a machine forcing the person to breathe, but basic nutrition is something different. And again, there's a difference between a disease taking over the body and nutrition being removed and taking over the body. Yeah. Yeah. And another lesson for this uh, that comes from this situation is that a lot of this has not been put into writing in a legal sense. Right. And it's really important for us to Catholic, as Catholics to uh, understand this as well, is um, advanced directives are really yeah. important for our medical situations because we never know when an accident like this may even right. happen to us. And to protect our dignity as a human person right. and that of our family members is to, uh, yes, be prepared for situations right. like this uh, because the medical community is not always on board with what the church has to teach about end of life issues. And many of our state laws are changing very quickly right now with regard to physician assisted suicide and euthanasia. And so in fact, the church, here's a great example um, of a resource for you. It's the ncbcenter.org. That's the National Catholic Bioethics Center. And they will actually help you and even give you consultation how to create these advanced directives. But here's something that's really important. Advanced directives are not enough Mm. because what if, and we've seen this across the nation, especially with people of good Catholic families where in the advanced directives, it says one thing, yet the situation is a little different than what's in the advanced directive. So ultimately, 
ultimately what the church advises is that you both have advanced directives for end of life care, but also that you have someone who will respect and understand the church's teaching, who will be your power of attorney mm-hmm. in those situations. So in fact, for those, you know, who may be wanting to know, we never know when a crisis will hit. Yesterday, I sent an email to my husband saying, hey, I want to make sure that you know the church's teaching on end of life issues and really understand it because it can be complicated issues. And here are resources, the NCB Center, God forbid anything happens to me, but also family members, how we help navigate those issues in the future as well. Yeah, it was a really important thing as we were going through the end of our time at seminary as well as priests entering into a a different kind of life of relationships than most people enter into, into family life, that we have these advanced directives in place, that our families understand what our wishes are, that we have our wills and our uh, in place in case some tragedy like this should happen, that we we don't end up, um, you know, having our human dignity taken away from us at the end of life situations. you know, and what it comes down to, yes, is that you know, being created in the image and likeness of God cannot take that human dignity away from a person who needs to be defended, who needs to be cared for when they cannot care for themselves. Uh, a, a situation like this can lead to great sanctity in the family, uh, can make a saint out of a person who suffers in this way. Um, and who are we to take that away from them? Um, as cruel as that might sound, as if we're forcing a cross onto somebody's shoulders, but how are we also going to walk with them and help them see this as a cross rather than as a ball and chain that is just holding them down? There's often peace that people need to make with God at the end of their lives. You know, whether one part is having, you know, anointing the sick, Mm -hmm. receiving reconciliation, but also the peace and reconciliation with God and with people who come around them. You know, I look back to Evangelium Vitae, St. Pope John Paul the Great's message on human life. Evangelium Vitae means human life, right? Mm-hmm. And he talks about euthanasia and the real concern, not only through the direct action of euthanasia, but by also the omission sins of omission. We don't think about that very often where we omit speaking up or omit certain treatments such as food and water that is a basic treatment. And he talks about there's a difference between bringing about death and the purpose for eliminating some pain. Ultimately, pain cannot be a reason for killing someone. That's not a dignified death as hard as they try to call it that right now. Yeah, and it goes back to uh, over the last, I believe five years or so, since we had that case where that woman wanted to go up to Oregon for yes. a, an assisted uh, uh, a, a physician, yeah, physician assisted suicide. And some really powerful and heartbreaking letters being written by those who are suffering you know, in their own ways, but choosing to enter into that suffering as an experience of the cross and as a part of their sanctification saying, your suffering is not meaningless. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that, you know, I don't know what the meaning of it is, only God does, but to throw, uh, to throw it away, you know, uh, St. John Paul II who wrote, you know, Ev- Evangelium Vitae and, and who saw the worst that humanity had to offer through, uh, you know, the, the Nazi concentration camps that some, many of his friends were sent to through uh, the, the communist rule in Europe uh, while he was Pope, that you know, he saw the worst that humanity had to offer, but he still fought for the dignity and uh, the, uh, the dignity of the human person. He could have said, the God, freedom. right. He, he could have said, God does not care about us if he even exists. That's the kind of world that he grew up in. But his whole, uh, his whole life, not just his pontificate, but his, his whole priesthood was centered around, you know, human, human love and its ability to not just imitate, but participate in the love of the Holy Trinity. 
And he says, this is where the dignity of the human person comes from. And when you try to take the dignity of the human person away, you know, when you try and take God away, you know, humanity loses itself and you cannot take God away from humanity. And so he would also um, just be writing about the great freedom, uh, the great dignity of the human person and especially an end of life issues. And then he gave us his own example of his own death, his own dying in front of the world to say, this is the dignity that a human person can have at the moment of their, their suffering and their death. Mm. You know, I think of blessed Pier Giorgio Frizzati mm. and his um, statement of to the heights, oh, right? Yes, Verso alto, yeah. Ver- yes <laughs> to the heights, you know, let's, let's go beyond what is comfortable. Let's go to the top of that mountain. Let's go, you know, all of God's covenants that he makes with his chosen people are on mountains. God is calling us closer to him. And if he's calling us closer to him, that's ingrained in our bodies. And have we forgotten, and I've not heard this said before, that God created us to experience pain. Mm. That is a part of how we were created. If God allowed us to be created in such a way, there is something so profoundly human about the pain that we experience. Mm -hmm. And it's also been profoundly suggested that God created us in his image so that eventually he could become one of us and unite us to himself. And, you know, we know that that pain is a part of that experience. And, you know, it's, you know, theologically much debated whether or not Adam and Eve would have experienced pain of any sort. Uh, I'm probably more of the, the type that would believe that they would have experienced pain of some sort, but their relationship with, with pain would have been far different um, than what we experience. But through our redemption in Christ, you know, we have the opportunity to offer our pains up in union with the cross so that it actually becomes transformative, not just for us, but for the world. And so that our pain and our suffering is not meaningless. And the world tries to tell us it's meaningless. And that because there's pain and there's suffering that God must not exist. If a truly loving God existed, how could there be pain and suffering? And we, we get to point to the cross and say, well, that, that's why. And that's not just something that happened. God wasn't just like, I want to go spend time with my creation. So I'm going to enter, you know, I'm, I'm just going to experience what they experience. Well, yeah, that was the beginning of it. But he also wants to transform it and still does every day, even the tiniest sufferings and the greatest sufferings united to the cross, a language that's not used enough in the church. Unite your sufferings to the cross. JP2 would say to his friends who were suffering, don't waste your suffering. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. Pray for me, pray for the church. Pray, you know, we're praying for you, but more important are your prayers for us. Don't waste your suffering. That's Father Tim Grumbach. You're listening to Trending with Timory. This topic of euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide, this is a battle that will only increase with time because people believe that it is merciful and dignified to allow that death to happen on my own terms, through my choice, through alleviation of suffering. But this is a distinctly Christian message that we have to offer to the world and a world that is hurting so badly, physically, emotionally, psychologically, that union, that that value of suffering is something that you and I need to learn to talk about. And I think of this, you know, Father Tim and I mentioned at the beginning of the show that this is about speaking up. We have to remember that Jesus has said over and over again, you know, I look at the Gospel of John chapter 15, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And I think that turning back to reading 
a reflection on the Sermon on the Mount and going back to the Beatitudes. Rejoice and be glad the kingdom of heaven is yours. That's what he says right after talking about the persecution we will experience and the rejection that even the prophets before him experienced. Yeah, your reward will be great in heaven. You know, and the rest of the world will say, well, why, why do I have to wait till then? You know, why not now? Um, but I, I truly believe that God is breaking into the world now and, and you know, he doesn't want us to wait until heaven to experience that kind of love, to begin to experience that kind of love. And that's why we have the sacraments. The sacraments are God pouring his grace into the world. You know, as, as the catechism says of the sacraments, that those, you know, that's the way that the, the head brings life to the body. Yeah. You know, this, these aren't just rites of passage. These aren't just uh, initiation rituals. This is the way that the head gets life into the body. Well, and have we thought about this? Jesus preaches the kingdom of heaven is now. Mm. It's at hand. Yeah. That person who's suffering could be a living day saint and we not know it, or we could be preventing that sanctification from taking place. Yeah, and we might be seeing it in those who are suffering the most, uh, in, in maybe, you know, maybe Vincent Lambert, maybe, uh, you know, the, the, the children whose lives are being taken in the wombs. You know, God, I, I've never been more convinced of anything in my life than this, that, that God has already placed the saints that we need where they need to be. Mm. You know, let's wait, Let, let's see what these saints are about to do. It might be you, it might be me. But God is not surprised by what's happening in our culture right now. He has his saints in place. And if you know, we're entering into this, this dire complaining all the time that we, we utterly distrust the leaders of the church, uh, we, we may not believe it, we may not say it, but we might live as if the church is collapsing around us. Do we not believe that God has put the saints that are needed where they need to be right now. And we're waiting for them to rise up in our own lives, even yeah, yeah. in our own lives yeah. where we're being called out. And that may be you that mm -hmm. needs to call out other people. You know, we were yeah. talking earlier on the phone about how hard it is for you and some of the counsel mm -hmm. with even just, for example, soon to be married couples right. and the situation and the sin that's being lived in and how to prudentially call them out of that at the same time as helping them to understand, well, you also have to trust me and know that I love you as mm -hmm. well. Right, right. Yeah. And you don't get to start marriage prep with the first question is, are you living together? Okay. Well, you don't get to do that anymore or I'm not going to prepare you for marriage. Yeah. You know, um, maybe, maybe some priests do that. Yeah. Um, it wasn't the way that I was taught and I don't think it would work with the people that I'm, that I'm walking with. And so, you know, maybe it's a buzzword accompaniment right now is a, is a <laughs> bit of a buzz, is a bit of a, <laughs> is a bit of a buzzword, but, um, but it is a tool. Yeah. It is a, it is not an end. Right. <laughs> it is a tool that must be used uh, from time to time. And you know, I keep thinking about I just came off of Vox Vitae. We had 120 teenagers there wanting to learn about their Catholic faith, about abortion, about chastity, how to sidewalk counsel, all of these issues and they kept coming up to me with questions because we talk a lot about transgenderism, mm -hmm. does God make someone gay? These are all issues we discuss. And a lot of their questions had to do with same-sex attraction and how to talk to someone who's living, you know, a, a contraceptive lifestyle, who's having sex outside of marriage, who's engaging in same-sex sexual activity. And he said, what do I say? And I said, I turn back to when I'd be in front of the abortion clinic or whenever I'm talking to an abortion-minded woman. And you have to first ask the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. 
to be with you. And I take this to every conversation I have now where someone's sharing a very private moment with me or a lot of sin or a different difficult situation. I go, good Lord, I am praying through it. I do not know how to respond right now. And I can tell you when you are willing to turn to the Holy Spirit, but then to stand up and speak up to that person and also learn when to shut up as well. Mm-hmm. The Lord may call you to something very bold at that time, or he may call you to a very gentle and slow movement of speech that you share with that individual. Or we can take the words, well, all of that, yes. And we can take the words of Christ when some of his first disciples met him and he said, what are you looking for? Mm -hmm. And it was such a beautiful moment that, 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 the Lord is always asking that to us, you know, what, what, what are you looking for? And we can lead that conversation that way. So, um, okay, your experience of same-sex attraction, what are you looking for? Like, mm-hmm. like at the depths, have you asked yourself, have you given God permission to tell you what it is that you're looking yeah. for? Or I think of the words of Michael Gasparro a couple of weeks ago, when he shared that when he's counseling someone who's got a porn addiction, well, take yourself to that moment when you were looking at that porn video. Mm. What was in your eyes? What were you looking for? It might be the intimacy of a spouse. Mm-hmm. It might be friendship. It might be strength. You know, there are different things. We're searching for something that's leading us at times into the wrong path as the answer. And so this is about freedom. Our last episode, we talked about freedom. So Father Tim and I just want to challenge you. Speak up. See the value of suffering and see the joy in the Christian lifestyle. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. It's great to be back with all of you. A bit of a heavy show. We've been talking about euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide, pain and suffering. There's a reason that we're bringing up these issues. Father Tim Grumbach of St. Augustine Parish in Los Angeles Diocese is with me. And Father, you have been accompanying people, and I just complained about that word, but I used it, (laughs) um, you know, at their deathbed now, through the marriage preparation process, through the grieving process. And so that's why we're diving deep into this issue, because where suffering is, where conversion is, the church is there. And there's another topic that I'd like to briefly touch on before we jump into uh, some concerns about minors in the law right now. And that is in the United Kingdoms, yet another thing taking place under their court system. A court made the decision to force a disabled woman to have an abortion. She's in her early 20s. Not a lot of personal information has been shared with her, but this 20-year-old young girl does not want to have the abortion, nor does her mother want her to have it, nor does her social work approve the issue yet the court ordered that she have this abortion a late-term abortion as well and yet finally after appeals to many different uh, courts another court ended up ruling that this should not occur the question however is how many women in the uk are being forced to have an abortion in the language of in the best interests of the women you know in in this case is a a woman in her mid-20s who uh has, uh, I believe, some mental disability. And so, you know, the courts are looking at her and say, oh, there's no way that she would be able to take care of this child. Her own mother has said, I will take care of the child. And, and her social yeah, worker, yeah, yeah. third party, right? Yeah, disinterested yeah. in the sense. Yeah, and there was, a, I, I don't know how official the news was, but there was a, a, a grotesque mention that the doctor said, oh, we'll give you a new doll. And you oh, can wow, take care of the doll and, and, and we'll take care of the child. And, and 
Yeah. And and they forget all the psychological studies behind the damage mm-hmm. to the woman who has an abortion. Right. Why would you further expose yeah. her to that trauma? A forget or never acknowledged in the first place. Oh, well, and what's <laughs> interesting behind this at the same time, the original person who was a justice, Nathalie Leven, who actually decided that she would have this abortion, mm-hmm. a late term abortion. This justice, Leven, actually was a major advocate in the past for British Pregnancy Advisory Services, which is in fact essentially the largest abortion provider in the UK. So this woman has a favoritism toward abortion advocacy essentially and what was even more terrifying about her decision was that she herself admitted to being aware that this was a dangerous case that such government intrusion into uh, such a personal matter as you know they would prefer to use this language such a private matter was an intense intrusion by the state but was still willing to go through it because this was how she understood the best interests of this young woman which is a a terrifying thing to hear the government or, or a representative of the government saying yes i'm exerting too much power but i'm going to do it anyway this is a scary situation that the united states may find itself in soon as well because in the uk over the last few years we've seen multiple babies who have been essentially killed and rejected treatment as a result of court decisions removing rights from parents we were just talking earlier about the gentleman who is going to be euthanized by the courts Uh, this is a really scary situation in fact the gentleman earlier we mentioned that may be euthanized um, after a court order the parents appealed to the UN and the UN health um, one of the health departments for the UN ended up saying hey can you wait so that we can investigate this case and in fact the courts in the UK refused to which shows some red flags about the way the court systems are handling issues of human life. It's not just there in the UK that we have some serious cause for concern. Very briefly, Father and Tim and I are calling you to speak up. Ohio heartbeat law is being overturned uh, for the state of Ohio by one um, court judge. We'll see where this battle takes. It could go to the Supreme Court, potentially. The conversation, essentially, why it was overturned um, or blocked from being implemented in Ohio is because it creates an undue burden or, quote, insurmountable barrier to abortion, which is because of a 1992 Supreme Court case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, Mm -hmm. which said that no abortion restriction could be implemented that caused an undue burden on a woman to have an abortion. Right, and the situation coming up in Ohio right now is because the previous governor uh, refused to sign something like this into law because he was afraid of how much it would cost the state uh, in legal bills and finances as pro-abortion uh, groups would fight the law. Mm-hmm. And so in, instead of standing up for life, for the sake of standing up for life, he you know, seemed to set it aside for the, the, the sake of the finances of the state. And so this new new governor uh, very boldly you know, signs this into law. And then the judge comes in and says, well, as most many judges who are striking these laws down say, well, one, they're, they're, on, you know, they're not going to be constitutional and, right. and, and whatnot. But it, it, this is yeah. a case we could see go somewhere to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. We don't know what case essentially will end up going there. But here's the deal. Whatever pro-life law or whatever pro-abortion law it is, we need to speak up for life. And we need to have the numbers and the voices behind it, along with the financial backing. Because states like Ohio and other states that are passing pro-life laws are going to take on the financial responsibility. Mm -hmm. for defending this law against radically pro-abortion ideologies that are seeking to strike
take them down. So we're calling you to speak up. Be aware right now. Great news. Gallup poll shows that pro-life position is up. We're up to 49% and pro-choice is down to 46. That's the most pro-life we've seen since polling back in 2013, essentially, which shows ultimately this attribution is not attributed to pro-life laws so much that were passed, but more so to the radically pro-abortion laws of places like Vermont, um, Illinois, and New York. So this radical ideology, if you speak about it, hearts and minds are changing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the way the media is you know, much of the media is presenting it from a pro-choice perspective. I think our younger generation is getting fed up with that. Yeah. You know, we're, we're able to look at the science. Uh, uh, a lot of younger hearts are saying there's got to be more than what, um, you know, what, what this world can give to us. So there, there must be something in my faith that tells me to speak out ag- against this. And so our younger generations are growing up as pro-life generations. And so, you know, okay, maybe it's not happening as quickly as we would like for it to but again, this will all make sense as, as we prepare our hearts to say, look, God is putting the saints where they need to be to prepare to turn the world upside down uh, from this, this you know, bizarre world that we have where you know, ig- ignoring science, ig- ig- um, trying to create faith as something as simply private and, and shouldn't have anything in the public sphere. So um, the, the pro-life generation is out there. My challenge to everyone listening though is that while the pro-life generation continues to grow the problem is this generation is also very relativistic Mm -hmm. so although they hold to a pro-life situation in a difficult situation they're being very permissive Mm -hmm. about abortion Mm -hmm. and so this is where stronger morality the reason why the harm on the woman the humanity the personhood of the baby these are such important daily conversations to be had yeah in this younger generation um facing the temptation of this relativism and having a difficult understanding that, you know, about objective truth and being told over and over again that, you know, speak your truth, even that subtle language that, okay, I have a truth that's different from other people's truth. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, there's no such thing as objective truth. Uh, I've got to say, I I went to see the new Spider-Man movie. Don't worry. I'm not going to spoil anything. (laughs) Um, But uh, the the, MJ is, uh, you know, Peter Parker's girlfriend and and uh, she has to come to his defense at one time uh, protecting his identity as Spider-Man. Don't worry, that's not a, spo- a spoiler. You know that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, okay? <laughs> well, um, she's accusing another uh, character of making something up and she actually quotes um, Orwell that, um, that the very concept of objective truth is fading out of the world. And she uses this almost as this relativistic, like, you know, you can speak your truth, but whatever sort of moment when, you know, really what was actually really behind that quote was Orwell looking at the Spanish Civil War and the kind of reporting that was coming out of it and says, no one believes in objective truth. And this is terrifying. And, you know, but now a younger generation can hear a quote like objective truth is fading out of the world and say, yeah, that's right. That's the way it should be. And so, you know, it's kind of let me down to see that uh, character like MJ in Spider-Man is probably part of a, <laughs> a, a pro-choice culture and generation, you know, willing, willing to be so relativistic, but that our younger generation, there are young men and women who want to be pro-life and want to understand that there's an objective truth, but they're being bombarded even in the most popular of culture with this sense that, you know, objective truth is fading out from the world and good riddance when that was never the original intent of uh, George Orwell in that quote. 
but here we are. Here we are. Yeah. You know, it makes me think of the little kids. You know, when we talk about relativism and I think of little kids, my brother, for example, used to love dressing up as Spider-Man. Right. And remember, sometimes it was a battle for my parents to get him to change out of the Spider-Man, the Batman, the Indiana Jones costume, leave the whip at home, you know, whatever oh. it might have been. And I remember one day it was a battle and we got him to go to church wearing normal clothes. And it happened to be that he was asked to bring the gifts up at oh. mass. And I mean, he was a little guy, adorable. And he goes up and he walks up to give the gifts and the priest leans down and just thinks my brother's adorable. And he goes, oh, what's your name, young man? And he goes, Peter Parker. Nice. <laughs> he was still in the costume, but... That was just a fun story. But what it made me think of, we're talking about Spider-Man and moral relativism. At a certain point, you've got to tell your kid you're not actually Spider-Man. Mm. For as devastating as that is, you're not Indiana Jones. Yeah. Like, ideally, as they get older, sadly, they start to leave those costumes behind. And, you know, you think of memories as just a part of, you know, at least for me as an older sister, the sadness of them growing up and the sweetness. But at the same time, real maturity starts to see things for what they really are mm -hmm. and we discover truth yet we were talking earlier about perpetual adolescence in a past show we're allowing people to live in perpetual adolescence in fantasy worlds and how else are we going to discover the saint that god has created us to be than to set aside those fantasies about who we want to be and to find the, the true desires that god has put onto our hearts that he is the one that has put them there Amen. We'll be right back on Trending. We'll be talking about men and rejection and how to better deal with the issue of rejection. We'll be right back with Father Tim Grumbach. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes or the iHeartRadio app where you can share your favorite episodes. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Okay, rejection is an issue that many people face, and some handle it better than others. Yet, I was inspired recently, Father Tim, by this article that came out from Catholic Match Institute, actually, where it was talking about men, are you scared of rejection, which inspired me to a deeper conversation overall about the topic of rejection for men. This is written by David Brettenbeck. Excellent article. I'll go ahead and tweet it out. But Father Tim, I would love to hear your thoughts on the whole issue of rejection, dating rejection, but job rejection, mm -hmm. whatever it might be for men. Right. Who is our primary example as men? Well, it's got to be Jesus Christ as Catholics, as Christians. What did Jesus have to say about rejection? Well, you will be rejected, but that. God will be doing more in our rejection uh, than he can in our success and our popularity, our fame and our wealth. And I think that's where it has to begin. Uh, then we can get into the psychological issue of what rejection does to us. But before anything else, uh, let's look at the reality of a, a God who entered into rejection for the sake of bringing us back to himself. You know, it made me think of my professor, Dr. Michael Barber in grad school would always say the only election, the only competition Jesus Christ ever was in was that against Barabbas mm. when the Jews were deciding whether or not to release Jesus or Barabbas and he lost. Right, right. And how awesome is Barabbas's name to begin with? What does Barabbas mean? You know, Barabbas, it means son of the father. And what does Matthew's gospel tell us about uh, Barabbas's first name? Yeshua. They chose the wrong Jesus, son of the father. 
they they chose the, the one that they thought could get them immediately what they wanted yeah. rather than the one who was uh, really challenging them to more. And what's interesting for those who don't know the context, Barabbas was actually like a political revolutionary mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. the time. And so they wanted him because they thought he was going to liberate them. He was a false messiah to them. Right, right. And so as Christians conforming ourselves to Christ, people are going to choose perhaps what's most immediately satisfying to them. And we have to be okay with that. And so as, as men, we stand there with Christ of whom Pontius Pilate said, you know, ecce homo, behold the man. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to understand ourselves as men who experience rejection, uh, the first image that we should be looking at is that of Christ wearing the, the the royal gowns with the crown of thorns on his head, having been flogged Mm -hmm. halfway to death. And so if, if we want to understand rejection, before we look at the psychological impact it has, uh, let's understand that uh, we are called to it. You know, just recently the gospel reading for Sunday was Jesus sending the 72 uh, out to prepare the way for him. And he didn't say, you know, if they don't accept you, he said, when they don't accept you, I am sending you like a lamb among wolves. And at times he says, dust off your hands, move on. Don't necessarily throw your pearls before swine. Like you can try That's right. You know, in the article it talks about, and I think it's not just dating, but it's uh, that job, you know, Matthew in the article says, oh, well, you know, what if, you know, people will just say, well, at least you asked that girl out. And, you know, before you asked her out, you didn't have a date. And after you asked her out, you didn't have a date. But he's going, no, that pain and rejection actually hurts. You know, same thing with putting yourself on the line to interview or apply for a new job. And that rejection sucks. And that's just a part of life though if we don't put ourselves out there we will actually never learn to love or to grow because reality is is even loving is opening your heart up to pain and rejection as well so what do we do do we close it in and put it really tight inside our bodies and never love no c.s lewis talks about how men need to have hearts Mm -hmm. and it's by having a heart leaving yourself vulnerable that you become the man you're called to be right c.s lewis wrote that to love at all is to be vulnerable Mm. and that you know we could keep ourselves safe from the vulnerability of love by wrapping our hearts up in hobbies and little luxuries and I love it. He says the casket of your own selfishness. Mm. Um, but in that casket, casket you're, though, right, right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He says in that casket, it will be, you know, airless and safe and protected, but it will change. It's dead. Yeah. Right. It will change. Your heart will become impenetrable. It will become stronger in a way, but it'll become irredeemable. And that the, the only way to be safe from the, <laughs> the, the risk of tragedy uh, from the vulnerabilities of love is to break our hearts out of that casket of our own selfishness. And, you know, he says the, the only place that your heart is safe from the perturbations of love other than heaven itself is hell. Yeah. And that's the, that's the casket of our own selfishness. And so um, perhaps we avoid rejection because we're selfish, because we don't want to enter into what Jesus has already promised to us that, a part of the Christian life is rejection. Just look at the cross. If, if we're serious about being Christians, we're serious about conforming our lives to Christ. We're going to be serious about conforming our, our lives to the cross, not as a ball and chain, but as something that actually brings life. And so, yeah, this, this article is, has, I, I love the resolution of it, is that embrace who you are. I mean, we can say so much more than embrace who you are. Uh, embrace who you are as conformed to the image of Christ. 
right? You're not defined by your sins, your weaknesses, your failures, your faults. Uh, don't embrace that part of who you are. Yeah. You're listening to Trending with Timmy. That's Father Tim Grumbach. I love where you're talking about embrace who you are. And I misspoke earlier. I didn't send Michael. It's David Brettenbach. He says achieve. And he keeps throwing the word out there like men, achieve, achieve. That's what it is to be masculine. He said, you know, I don't care about sex stereotypes. I hate saying gender stereotypes. Like just achieve. That's what you're called to. And I think in a sense about the monastic lifestyle and how for our centuries, when they pray the divine office, the liturgy of the hours back and forth, it was that there was this chanting back mm-hmm. and forth. They would pray in like a C shape, a half circle, and they would chant back and forth to each other. And the monks viewed it as a battle cry, calling each other out, challenging each other to live their identity in Christ, to be soldiers for the gospel, to find their strength in God. Men with that comes rejection with that actually comes death. You know, we read at St. Paul in Ephesians chapter five, husbands, he could even say men mm-hmm. lay down your lives as Christ did for the church. Mm-hmm. Right. In order to nourish and to cleanse her in order to present her spotless and without blemish mm-hmm. uh, to himself. And what, what, what a beautiful image it is that mutual submission, yeah. right? That, that, Wives are called to be submissive to their husbands as the the head of the family, as Christ was head of the church. And that it's not about domination by any means. It was never meant to be. A a man's domination over his wife is actually a result of the original sin. But that Christ is able to take that headship to recreate it, redeem it, and create it into something that will experience rejection, but in doing so will be a, a matter of nourishing and, and bringing life to his bride. And so, so all men are, are called to a certain amount of rejection, but that to be afraid of that rejection is, is a bit of a selfishness. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love where you mentioned you not only lay down your life for your bride as Christ did for the church, but you said to, so that the church, the bride can be spotless. You take on that rejection as a man so that there can still be that purity in the world, Mm -hmm. in the church, in your relationship, that rejection of, no, you can't have sex outside of marriage, that rejection of difficult situations, standing up for your faith, faith. It's okay to take a little egg on your face for the sake of who you are as a son of God. Yeah. And I think the Christian life requires us to learn how to fall. Right. In, in many ways, you know, I've learned this lesson in many other ways outside of the Christian context, you know, as, as, as a surfer, you have to learn how to fall. Otherwise you're going to lose your breath and you're not going to be able to get back to your board. You know, as a, as a cyclist, I have to learn how to fall. Otherwise I'm going to break a bone every time I hit the deck, you know, in, in, in my hobbies, I've had to learn how to fall. What, how's that different in the spiritual life? It's not saying that sin is good. It's not saying that falling is good, but if I don't know how to fall in order to let the Lord lift me back up, then I don't know how to experience rejection and I don't know how to get back up. Mm. And so it's, it's a, a, a deep and profound truth of the spiritual life is that we have to experience a rejection, not a rejection from God, but a rejection from the world. You know, that, that's all over, you know, St. John's writings is that, you know, of, of Jesus saying that, you know, if the world hated me, it will hate you. Mm. That, uh, that uh, you know, love of the world is not love of God. And it reminds us to pray for the virtue, especially as men, for the virtue of valor, to that courage, right? To act in the face of fear, to truly act in the face of that fear, of rejection, of humility, whatever that might be, to choose to still act, to take action. 
One of the strangest things for me to be looking at in our Catholic culture right now is, uh, yeah, I guess awards ceremonies, people being you know given oh honors and and uh, even like honorary doctorates and and things like this and, and or honorary award for this, honorary right, right, award right, right, for that. Right, they right, make yeah. Catholic events horrible. I, I, I love that we're able to show our appreciation for um, yes. for what people are doing and the sacrifices they make and the generosity that they're able to show that God has placed onto their hearts, but uh, it's it's just so strange to me that we accept honors in the same way that the rest of the world accept honors. And mm -hmm. uh, I know there will be days when people want to give me stuff like that. Uh, I, I I want to avoid it, but there will be those days. And I, I don't know, maybe I'll just have to uncomfortably receive it. It's an act of humility. Right, right, yeah. right, yeah. And, uh, and so maybe we need to uh, continue to dive into the way that the church needs to be a, a, a wounded and rejected thing uh, wandering around in the in the world, and as the great image goes, you know we're, we're beggars showing the other beggars where we've found bread. You can find Father Tim Grumbach on our website radiotrending.com underneath the guest page. You can listen to dozens upon dozens of episodes where Father Tim joins us, along with his social media on Facebook and Instagram at Father Tim Grumbach. If you enjoyed the show, please send me a message under the contact page. We would love to hear from you, including questions you might have, whether it's for Father Tim Grumbach or for our upcoming licensed marriage and family therapist. Send us your questions. Have a great week. This has been Trending with Timory. To book her to speak or learn more about her guests, visit radiotrending.com. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. 